All right, you can go ahead and be seated. I told my wife who gave the testimony earlier, that's not fair for her to make me cry before I need to preach. I remember that day. But please go ahead and open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. This week I saw uh, the results of a survey that was given earlier this year. And this survey was asking um, about the types of things that people would do for certain amounts of money. Like if I gave you X amount of money, would you do this? For $1,000, 15% of people said they would shoplift. For $10,000, one out of every five people would steal a street sign. One out of ten, I'm not sure how they came up with the list of things, but um, one in 10 for $10,000, 10% of people would lie under oath or knowingly spend counterfeit cash. For $100,000, one in five would forge a signature on an important document. One in 10 would enter into a sham marriage for $100,000, and one in 10 would falsify tax returns. For a million dollars, one in 10, 10% of people would smuggle drugs across the border for a million dollars. And for a billion dollars, 10% of people would commit armed robbery or treason. And get this, for that same billion dollars, 6% of the people surveyed would commit murder for a billion dollars. Clearly, money can be a powerful motivator. There are lines that people wouldn't cross on a normal day, that you put enough money in front of them, you put enough of that incentive, and they will gladly hop across those lines. Some would say that money can cause people to do the craziest things, but Is it really the money, or is it something else that causes people to be willing to do things that otherwise they would say are wrong, but now they're willing to do? Today we're going to continue our reset series, and we're going to be talking about money. You probably picked up on that by now. More specifically, we're going to be taking a look at what the Bible says about how we as Christians should think about money. And also, how we should use what little or great amount of money that we have. I mean, if our goal as followers of Christ is to live under the lordship of Christ and to reflect his glory, our money matters are not outside of the scope of that. It's not something separate from that. Today we're going to see how you handle your money should reflect your allegiance to and your affections toward God. Let me say it again. How you handle your money should reflect your allegiance to and your affection toward God. Now, today's message is going to have three points, and each point's going to have a different passage of Scripture we're looking at. So I'm going to make you use your Bibles today. So don't get too set in Matthew 6. The first point we're going to cover today is dealing with the allegiance aspect of how we think about and use our money. So our first point is allegiance. You cannot serve God and money. So let's look at Matthew 6, starting in verses 19. We're going to do 19 to 24 here. 
It says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, I'm not going to dig into all that's here in this section of Scripture, but we're going to look at kind of at a high level what's going on in this passage, in these verses. This is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So he's just spoken to the crowd about how to pray. He's given them the Lord's Prayer. He has spoken to them about fasting, and now he continues into this passage. And in verses 19 to 21, we see Jesus contrast two types of stored treasure. You probably saw it there. Treasure that was stored on earth and treasure that was stored in heaven. And Jesus says, don't store your treasure on earth because it's not going to last. It's going to disappear. It's temporary. Those things are going to decay and be destroyed. And on top of that, others can come in and steal it from you, leaving you with absolutely nothing. Rather, he says in verse 20, to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where they can't be destroyed and they can't be stolen from you. This is pretty simple, right? It's not super cryptic here. Pile riches up and your wealth up on earth and they're going to disappear. Pile them up in heaven and they are guaranteed to be safe. Earthly wealth will not last. Heavenly wealth is protected. But in verse 21, Jesus starts to get at a deeper reason behind his statements. Let's look at verse 21 again. He says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Not there your heart may be, there your heart will be also. Jesus makes a clear connection between our wealth and our hearts. He says these are not separate things. They are unavoidably linked our riches and wealth, and our hearts. Where we lay our treasure and our hearts. They are unavoidably linked. And then in the next two verses, he talks about this connection between the condition of the eyes and the amount of light and darkness that's filling our body. So what exactly is he talking about here? Well, the use of the eyes in the Bible is similar to the use of hearts in the Bible. It's, it's alluding to the condition of the inner person. See, the eyes reveal the quality of of the inner life of the person. It's like they're the window to the soul. You've heard that saying? Healthy eyes that are clear suggest a loyal devotion to God. Bad eyes connotes moral corruption. D.S. O'Donnell makes this comment about this, this passage in Matthew. He says, Jesus asks, how do you see the matter? How is your eye? Is it healthy? That is, do you see God as master and money as slave? Or is your eye bad? That is, is your whole view of who provides for you darkened by covetousness, which is idolatry? So then, to lay up treasures on earth is the selfish love and hoarding of material things, which is based upon 
the bad view that money rather than God is what ultimately provides. Do you see God as master and money as slave? This is a critical, essential paradigm for you to have when you think about the money in your bank account, the assets that you own. And Jesus says in verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. No one can do that. You cannot. Jesus says it's impossible to serve God and money. He says it's connected to our hearts in these verses. It's connected to our affections. And a little bit of corruption is going to poison the whole body. Therefore, you cannot try to walk that fine line where you think of your money and your devotion to God as separate things. They are not. Jesus says they are not. You can serve one, but not both. It's impossible, the Bible says, to be devoted to God and devoted to money. So think of the first two commandments. Do you remember what they are? First one is you shall have no other gods before me. And the second one is you shall not bow down to or serve any false gods. This is all kingdom talk here. As a follower of Christ, we are exactly that. We're followers of Christ. He is the king. We are his subjects. All that we are and have is his to do with as he pleases for the purposes of his kingdom. Our money is not our money. It's his money to be used for his purposes according to his will. So in concept, I imagine most of you sitting there are going, amen, amen, I totally agree with this. However, in the daily activities of life, how present is an awareness of God's kingship over your money when you make financial decisions? Do you have a practice of seeking his will about purchases, about vacations, about housing, about cars, about giving, about food, and the list goes on and on? Or is he totally forgotten in that process? Are you tempted to look at your giving to church as that's God's money, and now that I've done that, the rest of this is mine to use as I please? Is that a temptation for you? If you're like me, it's so easy to get enticed by flashy advertisements, these strategically placed kiosks in stores. Back when I could still drive before my blindness had overtaken me as much as it has, I was notorious in my family. My wife would say, hey, can you bring a gallon of milk home from the store on your way home from work? And I'd say, sure. And I was notorious for bringing the $10 gallon of milk home. Because I would get the milk and I'd be like, oh, well, that looks good too. And that looks good. And before you know it, I had like a couple of grocery bags of things when I was sent for a gallon of milk. Ultimately, what is enticing to me is to bow to my own self-indulgent desire for enjoyment and pleasure. Building my kingdom the way I always dreamed it would be. How we use money bears witness to our allegiance, either to the Lord or to something else entirely. Now, if we were to do an exhaustive study on the topic of money in the Bible, we're going to discover a couple of things. We're going to see that Jesus spoke more about money than he did about heaven and hell. 
we would see that this is not a sidebar topic to Jesus. We would also see that throughout Scripture, money is not considered moral or immoral. Money is not good or bad. There are verses talking about the blessings of money. There are verses talking about the curses of money. You see, what Scripture says, I want you to hear this, what Scripture says is that if we are having problems with money in any way, money is not the problem. Love is. Let me say that again. If you are having problems with money, money is not the problem. Love is the problem. If you're not struggling with money the way Scripture says you should struggle with money, money is not the problem. Love is the problem, which brings us to our second point today, a corrupt affection. Loving money leads to all kinds of evil. It's a corrupt affection. So let's jump over in our Bibles now to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Pro tip, if you get to 2 Timothy, you've gone too far. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And while you're turning there, let me tell you what's going on in chapter 6. In the first five verses of chapter 6, Paul has just described to Timothy the nature of false teachers. He's talked about how they're puffed up. They have a craving for controversy and quarrels. He says they're deprived of mind and they are depraved of truth. And the last criticism that Paul states against these false teachers is that they imagine that their godliness is great gain. And then Paul says, starting in verse 6 of 1 Timothy 6, he says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So in these four verses, or five verses, six through ten, we see the dangerous reality of a love for money. You see, the love of money is not just a problem with spending too much money. Don't narrow that too much. Paul Tripp suggests this passage identifies four ways that the love of money is a problem to us. The first one's this. Discontentment. The love of money is a, is a discontentment problem for us. Verse 6 says that godliness with contentment is great gain. Simply, it's much harder for the love of money to take root in someone's heart when that person's content. I mean, just think about that. That's, that's pretty simple to think about. A discontent Christian functionally communicates that God is not enough or that God is not doing enough. A discontent Christian functionally says that God cannot do or he will not do what is needed in their life for them to have joy. It doesn't take a great imagination to consider how discontentment fuels the love of money. After all, we are bombarded by marketing multiple times every day, telling us about some unmet need that can only be fulfilled with a particular product or service that they happen to be willing to sell us. It's very kind of them. When I got my MBA, my master's in business, the uh, very first thing they teach you about marketing, 
This is day one. The definition of marketing involves a process of identifying a need or a perceived need and solving it with your product or service. If you are marketing a product and there is not a legitimate need for your product, the first task of the marketer is to develop the perception of a need so that people see that as need, I need that to fulfill this thing for me. Have you ever not realized you needed something until an ad came on and convinced you that you were missing out on something, that you were incomplete without that product? Like, I never realized how hungry I was for pizza until the pizza commercial came on. There's also a reason they show you popcorn and soda ads before the movie and then charge you $25 for a soda or something. I never realized I was missing out on something so critical until Instagram and Facebook sent me a notification telling me I was missing out. I remember a documentary I saw about mid-20th century missionaries going into rural Appalachia where there really hadn't been anybody going there because it was just such difficult terrain, so rural. And there were people living there and these missionaries were coming to them because they were so poor and needy. And one of the community members recalled those days. One of the people who was living in one of those little towns recalled the day that they came to town and how they had a very simple and a happy life there. They didn't have any possessions except that which they could make for themselves or you know, recover from the, the woods around them. And here's what that person said. Listen to this. He said, the outsiders came and they brought us gifts because we were so poor and needy. Hear this. We did not know we were so poor and needy until someone told us. That was not a point in the documentary, but when I saw that, my heart just dropped. We didn't know we were poor and needy until someone told us. If it's talking about our spirituality, great job, missionaries. If it's talking about we're poor and needy because we don't have some of the material things other people have, not the message we want to send, folks. What we are told and what we choose to listen to are so vital to our contentment. Do we feast on the truths and presence of the all-satisfying Savior? Or do we listen to the voices or even join in with them, telling us how poor and incomplete we are? Discontentment is often the launching pad for a love affair with money. Thinking that just, if only I had more money, that's my means to contentment. That's my means to fulfillment. The second problem we see is in verse 7. We see that the love of money is also an identity problem. We forget who we are. We are the creation. We're the creature, not the creator. And we entered the world with nothing and we're going to leave with nothing. This echoes Matthew 6, where Jesus warns of laying up treasures on earth because they're going to disappear. We will leave with nothing. The third way that we see the love of money as a problem to us is the reality that we live in a fallen world. The love of money is a fallen world problem. It says in verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into a trap into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. 
Now notice here that this is not worded as a possible outcome. It's not worded as a probable outcome. It's worded as a certain outcome. Desiring to be rich will cause you to fall into temptation, the Bible says. Into a trap that results in ruin and destruction. They don't mention that in the ads, do they? We all know this pull. I'm sure we do. If only I had fill in the blank. If only I had that. The pull can be very seductive. About 25 to 30 years ago, um, I had the uh, responsibility to go to Las Vegas on a business trip. And I'd never been to any place like that. And I was fascinated when I landed there just at the pervasiveness of ways that you could gamble your money. Everywhere you turn, there was a slot machine or a game. Now, Stephanie and I had talked before I went, and we had agreed to a small amount of money that I could spend on some gambling games if I decided I was intrigued to try that. We were treating it as an entertainment expense in our budget, the same way we would a, moving t a movie ticket or a new board game. We decided here's an amount we're willing to spend on entertainment in that, that area. I was a, quickly amazed by two things. The first one was this, how quickly my $20 disappeared. <laughs> I mean, it was like minutes. <laughs> and I remember, I forget exactly how long, I might have been under 10 minutes on a slot machine, and it was just gone. And uh, I remember that. And, but here's the second thing that I was amazed by, was how incredibly strong the pull was in my heart to feel like, you know what? One or two more and I could get it all back. I could get it all back. If I just played a little bit more, I was due. I was due for a win. By God's grace, I pulled myself away. But I've never forgotten how strong that temptation was and how close I came to rationalize giving into it that day. I was perplexed by how I could be so tempted. Caught me so off guard. But what I quickly saw hiding in the not-so-deep place in my heart was the love to make a quick buck. It's a love for money. I mean, I would tithe off of it, right? <laughs> I'd probably even give some of it away. That's good, right? God's kingdom would be better off. It is an alluring, seductive pull, just like the pull of the ring in the Lord of the Rings trilogy for everyone who was holding it. Do you see the ugliness of the war for mastery of our hearts? I was considering how to pay off God with the winnings that I was sure would come so I could still have some left to spend on my dreams. I mean, it would be a win-win. God would get more. I'd get more. Why would you? That seems like wisdom, right? It leads to our fourth way in this passage that we see the problem of a love for money, and that's this. The love of money is a worship problem. The love of money is a worship problem. Verse 10 is often misquoted to say that money is the root of all evil. That's not what it says there. It says the love of money is a root to all kinds of evil. It even says that it's through this craving that some will walk away from the faith. Some will abandon the faith because of the love they have for money. It's a worship problem. We become a slave to things. 
We become a slave to our desires. The love, the adoration, the worship, the service that is meant for God and God alone is given to something else. And let's be brutally honest here. Ultimately, it's not the money that we love. It's ourselves. It's ourselves that we love. I don't love a stack of money. I love what that stack of money will do to build my kingdom up. We want our kingdom come. Our will be done. We crave for. We hope in. We meditate on things that will not deliver on the promises that we put on them. Things that will not survive. Things that we bow down to and worship. Things that attempt to steal glory and to steal honor from the one who came to deliver us from such reprehensible and damnable acts. The temptation is relentless. Yet sometimes it is so, so subtle. But even when it's subtle, it is not the less deadly. It's deadly. And verse 10 says, loving money leads to all kinds of evil. So we don't have time to try and do an exhaustive list here, so let me just put some categories for you of some different ways of evil. The first danger of the love of money is the danger of declaring, I deserve. I deserve this. How many times do you hear that in ads? I was actually recently on a cruise ship where my daughter Bren was potentially interested in some, um, in some jewelry. And she asked if I would go with her into the, uh, into the jeweler. And she went there, and I'll tell you what, I came back and I told Stephanie, I met the snake in the garden. Um, that salesperson was good. She was trying to find whatever hook it was. You, you, you know, this would match your eyes. Bryn's like, it's a completely different color than my eyes. <laughs> well, you know, just think of how impressed all your friends would be with this jewelry. And that, well, I'm not really, I don't, I don't know about that. I don't make a lot of money, so I can't really do a lot. Well, you know, gift yourself something. It's Christmas time. It's Christmas time. Get yourself a present. No, 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 no. Uh, well, like, did you pay for the cruise? Yeah, get your dad. Get your dad to do it for Christmas. She literally stops. She goes, how are you guys related? And um, I thought of a funny way to answer that, but I didn't. I stayed quiet. And uh, said, dad, well, get your dad to buy it for you as a Christmas present. And she goes, well, actually, this cruise was a Christmas present to us. And she said, well, okay, since you didn't have to pay anything for the cruise, then you've got money to spend on the jewelry. And I'm like, oh, my word, is this lady working it hard? She was trying to tell Brent she deserved to have that jewelry. It was owed her. The danger of feeling entitled to that which you do not have, and I should say this to my daughter's credit, she never caved to those things, so I don't want to leave that mystery out there. Um, no matter how you are doing, let me just tell you this, no matter how you are doing, if Christ has saved you, if you've responded with faith and repentance to the Lord, here is a fact that is always true. Always true. Are you ready? You are doing better than you deserve. You are doing better than you deserve. Your sins entitled you to eternal damnation. That's what you deserve. But Christ has taken your punishment and credited to you His righteousness. He has grafted you so that you can now say, I am in Christ. 
We are doing better than we deserve. He has promised to provide for all of your needs and to keep you safe until you are with him forever. When we think we deserve something and we don't have it, but then we see others who seem to have it, what happens? We become jealous. We become envious. We cry out, that's not fair. It's not fair that they get it and I don't. I want it. Just think about it for a moment. We really don't want fair. Fair lands us in hell. Unfair is a Savior that showers us with mercy, showers us with grace, to, gives us a new heart to walk differently and to become more like Him and spend forever relishing in the glories of Himself. We don't want fair. Jealousy and envy are also a quick road to a victim mentality where we don't see ourselves as under the good, sovereign care of a loving Savior. Rather, we see ourselves as forgotten. We start to tell ourselves we are cast-aside victims. And this all sows discontentment in our hearts. Do you see how, how devious that is? Now, there's also a danger of unrighteous desire. That's just the I want it. I think of, what was, what was the character's name in Willy Wonka? Veruca Salt. I want it now. I want it now. We crave things we don't have, and we won't be happy until we get them. This obviously can feed a very materialistic mindset and lifestyle where it seems that the one with the most stuff wins. We see this in kids where that toy that they just couldn't live without last week is sitting collecting dust in a corner, forgotten and undesired. And let's be honest, it's not just the kids. It's not just the kids. I had a friend once who said something to me. I, uh, a couple decades ago, I had a synthesizer, electronic keyboard, and I was lamenting how I wanted a different one than that. And he says, well, does that one still do all the things you loved about it? I said, yeah. He says, well, why don't you love it anymore? You loved it so much you got it because it did those things. Why don't you love it anymore? My eyes were moving to different things. Any one of us could continue to just add to this list of example after example where our wants pull us away. I remember a VeggieTales cartoon. Does anybody remember VeggieTales? I don't even know if they're still around or not. This, this VeggieTales cartoon was covering the topic of materialism. And in this video, Bob the Tomato is very concerned. He's very concerned because Larry the Cucumber just can't stop buying things from the newly opened Stuff Mart that's right down the street. And Bob the Tomato looks at Larry, very concerned, says, Larry, when will you have enough stuff? And Larry says, I don't know. How much stuff is there? <laughs> All right, another way the love of money manifests itself is in the me-first mentality. This leads to selfishness, a stinginess in helping others because I need to get mine before I can give to anybody else. Me first. I'm at the front of the line. It's also pride when you're tempted to always consider your desires as more significant and important than anyone else's. And often our giving in to these temptations leads us to another danger, and that is a delusion of control. 
a delusion of sovereignty that we have over our money and our life. Mike spoke about this a lot last week. I'm not going to rehash all of that, but we need to remember this. Just as we are not masters of our time, we are not masters of our money. Yes, we will discuss in just a moment the goodness and the godliness of wise stewardship of what we have, but let's not lose this category that we do not know all, we do not see all, we cannot control all. If we could control all, none of us would be paying more for groceries this year compared to last year. Our plans are exactly that. They're our plans. And they do not always work out the way we envision them working because ultimately we are not in control. Therefore, it's critical that we are following God's direction, God's instructions on how we handle finances because ultimately they're not ours to do with as we please. They belong to the king. They've been given to us to steward, and we will give an account to the master for how we did at this. So we've seen that the love of money leads to an unrighteous allegiance, and it reveals a corrupt affection. So let's finish up this morning with looking at some ways that we're instructed in Scripture to steward God's money that's been entrusted to us. The fruit of a righteous allegiance and a righteous affection toward the Creator and Master. So our third point is righteous affection. Serving God with the money entrusted to you. The foundation with honoring the Lord with any money or wealth is first and foremost remembering that it is His money, not ours. We've been talking about that. He is the master, we are the stewards. And don't forget this. Owners have rights. Stewards have responsibilities. If God's the owner, he has the rights over our money and wealth. If we are the stewards, we have the responsibilities over our money and wealth. And our primary responsibility as stewards is faithfulness. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 2 is on the screen. It says, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. This passage is talking about way more than finances, but it's not talking about less than that. Anything we have has been provided to us by God Himself. And in a few verses later, in verse 7 in 1 Corinthians 4, we see... What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? See, stuff's been given to us. So in regard to the money and wealth that we have, we must understand it's not ours to do with as we please, but as God pleases. Hear this. It involves surrender. Surrender is a, is a category you need to have when you think about your money. Surrender. Paul Tripp says this, he says, money wasn't created for the sole purpose of bringing into our lives all the things we crave. If we don't start with surrender, even if we're not in debt, we will use money in a way that God never intended. In this way, maybe many of us have more money problems than we realize. We think we're okay because we're able to pay the price of our pleasures, but we're not okay. Because what shapes our money matters is a spirit of ownership rather than a spirit of surrender. The first step in money sanity is surrendering to the glory of one greater than you. So let's start getting really practical here. 
If we're going to be faithful stewards who will give an account, we must be intentional about how we use money and wealth. We need a plan. We need a plan. So step one to serving God with your money is having a budget. Do you have a budget? Do you have a plan? And you may be thinking, gee, Christopher, that budgeting, that doesn't sound super spiritual. But I would say if it doesn't, I would suggest you're not doing it right. Budgeting should start with prayer. Prayer that acknowledges you are a steward, not an owner. A prayer that acknowledges your dependence on the Holy Spirit to lead you in how to use the wealth He has entrusted to you. A prayer that acknowledges the temptation that you have to plan for your kingdom and not God's kingdom. A prayer for Christ to glorify Himself. That's what it's ultimately about. Through how you plan and steward what He entrusts to you. Now the next important piece of budgeting is remembering last week's message on priorities. If you have not listened to that, please listen to that. Mike recalled that it's been said that you see a person's functional priorities by looking at their calendar and their spending habits. I'm not going to go into details about how to budget in this message. This is not a practical how to budget um, session. If there are those that really want to learn more about budgeting well or just learning how the Warrens do it, I would be thrilled to be able to just meet with you and help you in that way. Talk more in depth about that. But that being said, I will say this. Budget your priorities. Budget your priorities first. First. Most of us do not have unlimited funds, and we can't fund everything that we want to. That's the reality of where, where most of us live. But if you fund the kingdom priorities that the Lord is giving you, if you do that first, then anything that's not getting funded, you can rest, is a lesser priority. It's a lesser priority. It's, it may be important, but it's not as important. The most important stuff gets funded first. When you get money in, give those dollars jobs and assign them to your kingdom priorities first. And lastly, don't spend money on things you can't afford. Proverbs tells us that the one in debt is a slave to the lender. Don't sell yourself into slavery so you can have now what you can't afford that will never last. We want the Lord to be our master, not a lending institution. Now let's briefly look at the latter part of 1 Timothy 6. I already had you in 1 Timothy 6. We're going to jump down to verse 17, and we're going to see some instructions here for those with funds to steward. Clearly, in the time we have for this message, we can't cover everything that the Bible says about what to do with your money. But these are some categories that you're going to see here that I think will be helpful. 1 Timothy 6, 17-19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. We're reminded in this passage to not feel superior if God has entrusted things to us. We're also reminded to not put our hopes in those things that have been entrusted to us, but to put our hope in God, who is ultimately the one who's providing for us.
He then gives three categories of actions to take in here. The first one's this, do good. He says, do good. We're told to be rich in good works. Now, a priority for serving God, if it's doing good works, this may involve finances, but those with money are instructed to do more than just fund mission. They are to be on mission. It doesn't say, make sure everybody who's going to be doing the good works has money to do the good works. It says, be rich in good works. Next, we see the instruction to be generous. This goes way beyond tithing to your local church. Yes, with tithing, we are called to give of the first fruits of what the Lord gives. In fact, this should be the top line of your budget. When we follow the principles of giving in Scripture, we see a pattern throughout all of Scripture of returning first to the Lord, the best of what He has given to us. Your giving to the church should be the top line of your budget. Before paying Caesar or Uncle Sam, before groceries, before debt payments, before vacations, etc., etc., etc. But the call to generosity goes way beyond that. Does your budget have a category or categories for money that you intend to give away? Is that a priority in your budget? Do you purpose to live on less than you make so that you have excess to give away? I realize that there are certain situations where this is not wise or possible, but let's be honest, our hearts are very eager to tempt us to justify a whole lot more than necessary while we don't have anything to give to anybody else. Martin Lloyd-Jones shares a story about a man and his wife who were given two baby calves, and they decide that they're going to raise these baby calves, a white one and a brown one, and that one they would keep for themselves, and then one, as it grew up, they would sell and give the proceeds to the Lord. And they agreed that was a great idea to do. And the wife's like, so which one is the Lord's calf and which one's ours? And the guy's like, I'll figure that out. I'll figure that out. Well, a few months passed by, and the guy came in and said, the white calf died. And the wife said, which one was that? Was that ours or the Lord's? And he says, it was the Lord's. And Martin Lloyd-Jones just simply says this, it's always the Lord's calf that dies. It's always the Lord's calf that dies. God's kingdom purposes should not be funded by the scraps that are left over after our self-indulgence. Ask the Lord to lead you in what this looks like for your family, for your situation. It's going to look different for different families. Okay? This passage also tells us to be ready to share. That's the third kind of category we see in this passage. This is certainly linked with generosity, but it should create a category in your mind and in your budget of money that you're not going to spend on yourself, but you're going to spend on those around you as needs arise. And don't miss this. The promise, don't miss this out of 1 Timothy 6. Remember where we started in Matthew 6 about laying your treasures up in heaven? 1 Timothy 6 says that this is what storing treasure up in heaven looks like. Did you see that when we read it? It says this is what it means to store up treasures in heaven. And it's a good foundation for the future. It's a future where you are able to, it said, 
take hold, yeah, take hold of that which is truly life. This is how we do Matthew 6. So as I wrap up today, I, I hope you've seen how our attitude toward money and our handling of our money reflects our allegiances. It reflects our affections as well. And it testifies. It's a testimony on our lives of what we serve and what we love. Last week, Mike explained how our misuse of time is a form of worldliness, not godliness. Our misuse of money or our apathy toward intentional stewardship of our money is the same thing. It's worldliness. It's not following what God has called us to do. Followers of Christ are called to live differently from the world because they worship a different king than the world does. If you are aware today of misaimed worship in your life around money or, quite frankly, anything else, I want to remind you of some spectacular news. God has grace to restore those who worship the wrong king. God has grace to restore those who worship the wrong king. He's here right now to restore those who have been worshiping the wrong king. If you have been treating your money as yours and not God's, God has grace for you to restore you and change you. If you've been spending your money on your passions and your desires and giving God the scraps, if any, that happen to be left, God has grace to restore you and change you. If you've been coasting along, just disregarding God as it comes to your money because you seem to have enough in the bank account, you're getting the bills paid, God has grace to restore you and change you. If you've been seeking the approval of others by the size of your bank account or the lux luxury of your possessions, God has grace to change you, restore you. If you've been shaking your fist at God because it seems He's cheating you out of living the good life it seems that everyone else around you has, God has grace to restore and change you. Let's not be a people who coddle a worldliness in our money management. Let's not be satisfied with looking like the world in this. Let's be a redeemed, faithful people who declare our allegiance to the King and our affection for the Savior through our financial stewardship of His stuff. So I want to take a moment here just to give us a couple of moments to reflect on this and respond in our hearts to what the Spirit may have been illuminating to us from His Word today. And let's pray as the psalmist did in Psalm 139 when he said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's repent if needed in this area and reorient our worship, resolve our commitment to glorify the one true king, to make his kingdom our passion and our priority. Let's take a moment or two to reflect now, and in a few moments, I'll come back up and close us in prayer. Linnea, could you come up and...